Hello, my name is Brendan Decora, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Pro Audio Profiles. Here, I'm going to interview recording engineers, mixers, producers, and others in the pro audio field. Together, we're going to learn how you can make amazing records that can give your listeners goosebumps. Welcome to the show. On today's show, we have Philip Broussard. He's worked with Rick Rubin for a long time and has credits with the Chili Peppers, Tommy Stinson, and Jake Bug. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's it's cool to be here in your studio with you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Nice, nice. Um, so I want to start with a little bit of your background. If you could go through, you know, just summarize how you got to where you are. Sure. Um, I guess uh, it goes back to um, back in my days in college. I started working at a uh, at a little regional studio in Austin, where I was mm-hmm. going to college at the time. Um, and I actually worked for two of them there. Uh, one was run by a TV producer who was working on regional talent in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. And then that took me to another studio, which was on the other side of town. <laughs> But uh, another studio that was working with regional talent as well, and this is the early 90s, mind you. Okay. Um, and we're still obviously working in analog. ADAT is shortly coming out or oh, not geez. rolling out at that right. time. Fun times. <laughs> so much fun. Everyone loves locking up ADATs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he was also, they were also doing some label work for a couple of blues labels in the region southern Mm -hmm. or eastern western louisiana and eastern texas and they had done a few bigger projects christopher cross Mm -hmm. tim buck three eric johnson and the like so i was lucky enough to kind of parlay another internship as you as you would right um parlay an internship there and I met a couple of guys, uh, Jim Watts and Ethan Allen. Um, mm-hmm. We were kind of going to college together at the same time, working at studios, working in restaurants. And that eventually got me with relationship of those guys, uh, helped me become sort of the engineer that I am now with the idea of learning signal flow, learning right. how to plug in microphones, right. session flow. So you never went to school at all? You just started... Started working in studios. Cool. Yeah, I was a fine art major in okay. college. Okay. Uh, but I had a big, I had a big background in electronics equipment. Mm-hmm. I was always the guy that had stereo systems and reel-to-reel decks and turntables, and I was always uh, playing around, experimenting with that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I had this knack. It was always around my childhood with my parents and right. stuff, and that was something that I was always interested in. But I didn't. Um, you know, in your early 20s, right. I, I had no idea what I was going to do, still trying to yeah. figure that out. But <laughs> luckily, it got me into um, studios. And uh, yeah, I started, cool. I was working, started in Austin, and then okay. it uh, eventually took me to New Orleans. Yeah. At a bigger studio, like a real proper studio. Nice. Um, major label projects were being done there. Okay. Uh, and it was for, uh, Daniel Lenoir was the owner of the studio, okay. and it was uh, previously nice. his his private sort of uh, studio where he was doing his own projects. Right, and then I think he took them on the ro- took projects on the road and would tour. Okay, and then book it out in the meantime. Exactly, he okay. was able to figure out. Okay, you know, I guess these people are kind of trustworthy. They're going to pay me some money, right. you know, um, and. Uh, it eventually kind of turned into a little business for him. Right. And I came in much later nice. uh, after that. So uh, great studio there. And I, that's when I really learned like real major recording right. on analog consoles, um, mm-hmm. analog tape machines, a um, bunch of old vintage microphones and compression nice. and EQs. You know, we had API, Neves, Studers, right, right. all of the, kind of textbook examples. Right. And um, did you work with Daniel at all? Or? I did not. Not oh, really? no, not on not on any projects okay. per se. Uh, he would pop in and and would come and stay and he was doing other things in town that mm-hmm. maybe were more business oriented, some music oriented, but he okay. wasn't he wasn't doing records there 
or projects there when I was there. Gotcha. Um, so we, but I did develop a rapport with him and, and he was always a very much a, uh, mentor in a lot of ways that he would pull us aside and okay. talk to us about calibration, alignment, oh, wow. techniques, editing, nice. um, listening, how to listen. Nice. It's one thing if you're hearing just a lot of stuff going on, but right. what are you listening for? That was always a little helpful hearing it from someone who's been around right. to sort of, right. you know, guide you and sure. hone in nice. something like nice. that. Yeah. So what, what happened after New Orleans? New Orleans, um, he was going to, he was, he put it up on the market to sell. I don't think he wanted to okay. be in the commercial studio business. Right. And um, it ended up bringing me to California. It was going to be closing. And there was a while there where like every session we did, it was going to be like the last session. This is the last session that went on for a while. <laughs> went on for a while. Yeah. And gear was kind of slowly making its way to the West Coast because he mm -hmm. had a facility in Oxnard. Okay. Um, in an old uh, movie theater that he had uh, converted into mm -hmm. a studio. And uh, eventually... You know, I was going to have to make the move either to New York or right. L.A. Right. I'd never been to either one. I'd been to New York once a few years before, but it was still outrageously expensive yeah. then. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I, I was going to have to make a decision if I wanted to keep working at, you know, the caliber mm -hmm. of clients right, and labels right. and budgets and stuff. So um, I made the made the trek to California. Cool. And, uh Got a job over the fax machine uh, right. with, with a, <laughs> yep. a friend of mine was working. He was going to a recording school here, mm -hmm. uh, Ben Mumphrey, and uh, he was going to a recording school. He was working at a studio called O'Henry okay. in Burbank, mm -hmm. and um, was he was like, send me your resume, put my resume in front of the studio manager. Studio mm -hmm. manager called and said, this looks great, but I hear you live in New Orleans and you may be moving to California. Right. I move and I said, yeah, if you give me, if I get a job, yeah, I will for sure move. Right. And I did. Cool. And I drove straight to, you know, a couple days later, two, three yeah. days later, I drove straight to O'Henry to meet them and see the facility. Cool. And then, um, that's what got me here. So it got me nice. to California. Nice. Yeah. Okay. It was interesting. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, um, I know we met many, many years ago at a place called the Steakhouse. Yeah. And that was when I remember you had hooked up with Rick Rubin in that whole camp at that time. That's Can you right. tell me a little bit about that camp and what that was like? Yeah, it was amazing. And it still is amazing. Yeah. What can I say? Um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, we met at the steakhouse. Um, mm -hmm. Which is a studio. It's not a steakhouse. Right. <laughs> I remember getting what? phone calls like, what's on your menu tonight? Like, uh, no. <laughs> we weren't taking reservations, uh, that's for sure. Uh, how funny is that, right? I, I don't even know. I don't even know the story of why they uh, yeah, called it that. To this so day, strange. I still don't. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, a great facility. Mm -hmm. um, two EMI Neve consoles put right. together. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal sounding yeah. console. Uh, great room, great live room, um, killer staff. Yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you, yeah. Let's see. So, yeah, I started working there. I'd done a little, I'd done a little stint at Sound City after oh, my right. O'Henry days. Okay. Um, I ended up, uh, I ended up going to Teatro for uh, working there. Uh, O'Henry kind of ran its course. I went to Teatro, did a thing there, and started, um, did a bunch of. Studio installs and decommissioning studios and kind right. of setting up for making records. Right. Took me to Sound City. I was there for almost two years. And then um, I jumped ship. Okay. And um, I went and ended up going to, I ended up doing some tech stuff for a minute and doing more studio installs with Mark Howard mm -hmm. from Dan's Camp. And then um, brought me to Steakhouse where you and I uh, crossed right. paths. And... It was there that uh, I ended up meeting Rick and Greg Fiddleman and Dave Sardi and mm -hmm. Greg Gordon and uh, Schiffman. I, I think I might have worked with Schiffman at uh, oh, Sound, Sound City, City yeah, yeah. I think. For sure. And um, a crew of folks who were very busy, um, mm -hmm. amazing teachers, mentors, whatever you want to call them. Um, I learned a 
a hell of a lot of recording and technique right. from all of those people. What were some of the projects that you guys worked on? I mean, I know you're still working with that camp, but yeah, just list off a couple, just a couple of of during the steakhouse days. No, or? with Rick. Oh, with oh, with Rick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Um, geez, Lincoln Park, System okay. of a Down. Nice. Uh, Which System of a Down record? Really, you worked on? You worked, worked on them? Yeah, we we. Uh, we did two records in the same session. We oh, did wow. uh, Hypnotize and Mesmerize. Okay. All nice. in the same session. Nice. I didn't know you worked on that. That's yeah. Cool. We did it up at the Houdini Mansion. Okay. It was nice. a studio install. Right. And um, yeah, they had a lot of songs written and then there was a lot of writing that happened. To nice. I don't, I don't know if they intended it to be a double album or okay. two single records. I don't know if that was the goal. Right. But we certainly, we certainly had enough material and obviously it came. Right released that way yeah nice but um chili peppers of four course. of course or i think i just i did my fifth chili pepper record i think all right COVID. just now yeah um uh what else man uh, dixie chicks adele okay um which is a big one jay-z right um, yeah it's always surprises me how many the variety of clients that rick works with yeah like, wait what yeah <laughs> yeah and i did one record that i really loved uh it's called devotional music Okay. By this guy named Krishna Das. Okay. He sings in Sanskrit. Oh, wow. <laughs> Where are you doing records in Sanskrit? That's crazy. Days, you're not. Um, <laughs> nice. It was amazing, but really super vibey and very oh. meditative and right. almost droney to a lot of. Right, right. Uh, very spiritual. It was really quite amazing. Nice. But yeah, so the gamut of what Rick's working on is, right. is that swath is pretty right. wide. And obviously you're doing stuff on your own producing and engineering records your own projects now um what are some of the recent things that you've worked on uh well uh some of them i can't talk about of course um but because they're still still being worked on and mm -hmm. will come out sometime in the near right. future um chili peppers uh we did over mm -hmm. uh lockdown uh, right we did 10 months out at shangri-la okay and that was an interesting time because COVID was really kind of at an all-time high. Right. Uh, you know, we had, uh, we were getting tested every week. Oh, and um, it was, it was, that was a weird, it was a weird time. But we just kind of focused on the work and mm -hmm. uh, did that. So, right. uh, so I did that over lockdown. I did another thing, like I said, two other things mm -hmm. that I can't really speak of. And then since then, we've kind of come back out of that world. Um I do some archiving part-time as well okay. for a couple clients mm -hmm. and tr I'm usually transferring old tapes of some sort, mm -hmm. or I'm taking an old Pro Tool session from like Sound Designer 2 files right. and can bringing them up to Wave. You know, <laughs> right, I have an old right. rig that I do that too. Right. And um, and then I also do, I'm uh, done some mixing. I uh, just okay. recently worked with a band, um, synth dark wave kind of band out mm -hmm. of Texas called Night Drive. Nice. We did a five song EP that nice. was really cool, really fun. Right. We're about to embark on another one. Okay. And then, uh, and you're only mixing that. I'm or? only mixing that okay. at the moment. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> do you uh, engineer and produce as well? Or I do. I okay. do. Um, it's been a minute since I've produced right. uh, something. Um, okay. But mo a lot of engineering, a lot of mixing. My producing goes back a couple of years when I was Tommy Stenson and I did a couple records together that okay. I produced with him. And then, um, what, yeah, mostly it's just been a lot of engineering. Cool. And I do, you know, some really yeah kooky stuff too. <laughs> all good. Out all good. in the forest. We all do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. <you know. laughs> nice. So one thing I like to talk about on the show is, um, you know, just how to get the best performances out of your clients and inspire people to, you know, perform their best. When you're engineering and you're preparing for a session, what are some of the considerations you take for that well it's always helpful to if i'm just engineering it's helpful to know the material to mm -hmm. kind of know what you know is it a songwriter is it a metal band you know right. obviously uh, that's super helpful um and then i start prepping based on what i find out with that kind of information and i'll try and do some research and figure out mm -hmm what gear they've used in the past, what okay. microphone chains are they using for vocals, guitars, you know, whatever, drums, whatever. I mm -hmm. mean, it's helpful to, it's helpful for a band to walk in and, and 
feel at home with familiar-looking right. equipment. Of course. Um, but uh, if I'm producing, then we have conversations uh, with the artist about what sound they're going for, right. what their vibe may be, what, what do they want to achieve, what do they want to stay away from. Mm-hmm. And we'll t- usually have conversations, if not some listening parties, where we can listen to their music in the past, maybe what they don't want to redo okay. or revisit. And then maybe some reference of something that they want to do right, based on right. current music or something that they like. It doesn't even have to be current. They might like something from someone else and like, how can we achieve this vibe or this sound or, mm-hmm. you know, scale back arrangement or add more, you know, right. and it, yeah. So for me, it's about just sort of uh, research and then a lot of conversations and back and forth. Right. So we can kind of, come together with a game plan nice and like obviously when you're a producer you have more control over you know discussing the artist's you know broader vision and that kind of stuff but when you're engineering you know do you work with the producer or do you work with the artist or how do you figure out what what kind of sonic picture to, to craft it depends it depends if it's a if it's a producer then obviously he and i are having the or she and I, of that course. person and I may be having that conversation of what their goal may be. And I may not really be dealing with the artist, okay. uh, maybe just sort of strictly with them. And they've got a vision and they've got a goal and them and the artist have figured that out. And I'm there to sort of facilitate and just make sure mics are working, make sure everything is is copacetic so we can just kind of fly. If I'm with the artist, then I am definitely talking with them and figuring out what our goals are. Are we doing an album? Are we doing an EP? A couple mm-hmm. songs, and then figure out what what my what my role is. Producing means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Good, bad, or otherwise, you know, that's a different conversation. But um, I'm not really um, I'm not just a you know I'm not a beat maker. You know, of course. Um, I'm kind of I I see myself as a uh, an old older school kind of producer where you know if I need to make beats or make a, a something I mean mm-hmm. I will but um it's more of the of the old school style of kind of uh, let's go through the songs let's make sure you know um this is what we want to do songs kind of even in the demo stage you can kind of tell which batch of songs fit together and maybe the ones right. that don't Maybe some of them are more finished. Maybe some of them are not. And certainly as you start recording them, the songs really take on a life of their own. And maybe a song that you thought was a throwaway might be the one everyone's most excited about, right? Right. And vice versa. Yeah. So um, I might have, uh, we'll have those conversations about what we're trying to do. And then we can talk about tempo, key, Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, batching or grouping of songs and how they fit with one another to make it a bit of a cohesive Right. work um and whatever we may do to facilitate that you know mm-hmm. how whatever the best way is do we track it as a live band right is it a one-off piecemeal kind of thing you know mm-hmm. click track in a rhythm section or the demo you know right. uh, and a rhythm section playing on top of the demo or you know whatever whatever we're doing right um right. it's kind of it's kind of there's no rules, you know, anymore, it seems like, you know, everyone has their own way. Yeah. And, uh, which I think is also cool because it certainly breaks it up. From, right. You know, something else, but. Yeah. So that, that actually brings me to the next question where I wanted to talk about, um, working in different environments. You know, you mentioned you spent time actually helping build studios and, you know, outfit studios and stuff like that. How do you, um, what do you take into consideration when you have to go to like a smaller studio, even a place that's built out in a house or something that's like that, you know, sure, what, sure. Do you, what do you think about when you walk in? Yeah. That playing field is very unlevel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, I think first and foremost, monitoring uh, mm-hmm. is the, is the thing that we've got to get dialed in uh, for the most part. We've got to be able to hear and listen accurately to make, you know, um, proper decisions you know um it's ground control um but also environment um i love different environments from you know studio installs to to straight up 
you know, studios built from the ground up, East mm-hmm. West, Sunset, right. know, United. Uh, I love those as well. But I think, you know, it depends. I, I'm in, I'm a little indifferent about like what, what we need as, as opposed to, or what I want as opposed to what we need. Let me right. put it that way. Right. Because if we don't need an Eve 8068 just to do vocals or something else, right. then we don't need that. Um, but for me, I think monitoring is, is, is super helpful and I have speakers I can bring if, if they're not available Mm -hmm. and then whatever our goals are, will kind of dictate what we need, how many microphones, what caliber of microphones we Mm -hmm. need, amplifiers or pedals or outboard gear. Um, I'm indifferent as long as it inspires the artist Mm -hmm. and us to be working. Right. Uh, to get great work done, I'm all, I'm, I'm down. I'm all right. about it, you know? And that's, that's part of it too, is, you know, sometimes when an artist works in a studio that's built out of a house or a retreat place or something that's not a professional commercial place, it's like some of the, the pressure is relieved a little bit, you know, because they're not looking at the clock. They're not worried about that, you know, kind of thing. They can relax and, you know, get into it a lot more. It is. It's that's very true. Um, especially if if I may go back for a sec, like when I talk about Kingsway back in the New Orleans days, mm-hmm. it was um it was a old three story mansion oh, okay. um that had a studio built in on the ground floor. Okay. I say built in, actually equipment was just sort of brought in and installed. Right. It wasn't like <laughs> you didn't we build had out. panels yeah. and clouds and, and <laughs> it was none of that. Right. It, that was the that was the vibe that you know, it was like we're in this old mansion right. from 1860. This is a vibe all on its own. Right. Let's make re- a record here or several records as it eventually became. Mm-hmm. But um, like I said, there was no there was no attitudes of trying to change or, you know, adapt that into a studio. That right. was the vibe. Right. And, you know, it was also set up in a situation where artists or bands lived there. Okay. On the second, or it was three stories, so on right. the second or third floor, depending how many folks you had or, mm-hmm. you know, what have you. But we had, I mean, it was a big kitchen and dining room and right. uh, ballroom, and we had a, you know, big grand piano and, and anyhow, a 40 input console. And, right. But we would work and there was Persian rugs on the floor and mirrors right. and you weren't, you weren't in a studio right. per se. Right. You were in a creative vibe that very much was inspiring right and you wanted to to be in there right it was hard for people to go to bed (laughs) (laughs) right they were they were hard on the engineer yeah (laughs) we worked we worked long hours because of it because there was no clock or there was no something weighing over someone's head Mm -hmm. on we got to wrap up because we're going to get into overtime right it was never a deal and the uh, Rick's Houdini house, was that similar vibe or what it was, was the deal abs- with that? For sure, it absolutely was. Okay. And uh, now that was a, that's a situation slightly different in the aspect that Rick owned the house okay. and we brought in all of the equipment. And then once the record was done, we loaded, we loaded the equipment out. Oh, really? It, it wasn't was, permanently set up as a studio? It was not a permanent oh, setup. I didn't know that. It, yeah, that's right. Uh, huh. It was a temper, it was a permanent temporary Okay. set up um yeah but it was the same kind of thing um because there was a lot of records done there why didn't lot, you just a lot outfit it and leave it you know because uh <laughs> it was a house that was unoccupied uh-huh. and you know there might be a weekend between a record mm-hmm. i remember going from i think it was the hours uh to the chili peppers with like a 48 hour turnaround, like mm-hmm. loading out and then loading them in and going right into right. stadium arcadium. Um, and I had been working on the hours for, I think two months, right. possibly three. I was working all, and they, mostly all they nights. switched out all the gear. No, the gear all stayed the same, okay. but the okay. band loaded out their right, right. gear and then the other band loaded theirs in. But that was the only time where they were sort of, bookended almost back to back other times there might be a month or two months or even three months or longer between 
um, it would have been lovely to have not torn yeah. that stuff out so often, but <laughs> it just was, you know, that's scheduling and bands and, right, and tour cycling right. and everything. So uh, record cycling and everything as well. So it was just very different. But yeah, it there was no staffing there okay. at the Houdini place. Okay. Um, no security right. or lack of a better term. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like a you know, security team or so forth. There usually were when somebody was there. Of course. When the band was there, they would bring in security or we would rent, we would hire security on premise um, because we had a lot mm -hmm. of equipment up there mm -hmm. and not to mention intellectual property with hard drives and of tapes course. and things of that nature. And and that's a pretty well-known uh, spot in LA. If, yeah. If you people that are music fans and fans of bands that have worked there over the years, mm -hmm. It's still a spot people drive down and will try and pull over yeah. and walk up. Yeah, and you can to, see it right off the it's road. It's pretty you're clear. <laughs> down Floral Canyon. If you know what to look for, yeah. it's it's yeah. not it's not hidden. Yeah, I mean he doesn't own it anymore, but that's correct. That's so correct. it's um was the gear all rented or it, it was oh, the gear okay. was all rented. We got oh, okay. it from uh, Ocean Way sense. Studio had a rental division called okay. Classic Studio Rentals, right? And we got it. Got it all from them. I see. So, so he just rented it on a per project basis. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought that it was like, you know, all the gear was his and like, why would you pick it out? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because so many things are done there, you know. I mean, that I would have, <laughs> I had kind of suggested, been suggested nice. that at one point because yeah. I was kind of the guy that was a fixture there. <laughs> right. It was really me and whoever was brought in. Right. Um, and I worked a lot there, uh, mm -hmm. over the years and, uh, even on, I, I loaded in uh, several projects that I actually wasn't, I would, I was sort of being, I would be a consultant on something, okay. but I was there to load them in and kind of get them set up and get right. them going. Right. And then also there for load out, you right. know, and tear down and sort of things. But in, in addition to, I don't know how many records I made there, eight or 10, yeah. maybe 11, Huh. Um, there over the years, but there were people who wanted to rent it, you know, and do photo shoots and film shoots oh, okay. and video shoots. So and in between the records, he would rent it out. Absolutely. Oh, okay. And, and he had, you know, and he had obviously first call on what he was doing yeah. and, and when to rent it and when not, depending mm -hmm. on who may or may not be coming in. But, um, yeah, and I had sort of suggested like, is there a way that we could just, it's not my money, so it's very easy for me to go to the office and say, can't we just leave the Neve there? Right. <laughs> and and all of the gear, and, yeah. and, you know, I could probably bring in some sessions, you know, yeah. in between the bigger records and so forth. But, yeah, that wasn't, uh, yeah. I, I think in, in, in hindsight, you know, if financially speaking, maybe that would be something more viable now. Right. But I also think in turn, Rick, and I can't, I'm not speaking for him on any stretch of the word, because now he owns Shangri-La. Right. But I think at the time... I don't think he was interested in having a commercial or let right, alone a studio. Right. Now he had a studio in his, his the bottom floor of his house mm -hmm. and I worked in there a lot and a lot okay. of us did worked in there a lot, but um, I don't think that was something he was interested in was like right. running a business. It was just really for his projects. And, right. and it was had, all part of the project budget for the rentals and everything. So it was a yeah. deal. And he had okay. comfortability and mm -hmm. it, not only that, they were private Right. You know, and, and yeah. a lot of the, I mean, for up until I, you know, up until we were done with Chili, even when Chili Peppers was done, like, mm -hmm. can't really, I'm not really at liberty to talk about of course any of that stuff. Yeah. And so when you were setting up the place, like, was it different setups? Or were you trying to, um, were you working with anyone to help, you know? Um, from the artist's perspective to kind of maximize the setup or the the setup the setup changed regarding consoles how many inputs we needed mm -hmm. obviously a smaller input console is right. cheaper than a larger input console of course slipknot has nine guys in the band yeah <laughs> and we want to track live yeah that's different from the mars volta who Right. At the time, was really a four piece, mm -hmm. um, and depending on what you're trying to do, mm -hmm. um, and so when you're setting up for different projects like that, like how do you, you know, keep in mind from the artist perspective, like the layout of the room, so everyone can see each other. Like, how do you how do you make sure that they're comfortable in the room? That is 
we have to have a conversation with the band when they show up. I mean, we have a pretty good idea Mm because we've done it a number of times, but always the the principal person in the band, Mm -hmm. if not the bass player, if that's not the principal, wants (laughs) to see the drummer. Right. You know, we okay. got, th- these guys need to have eyeline, eyesight with everyone. Percussion could probably be in a different room without great eyesight. Right. And I mean percussion like not a, a main drummer, like right. a, you know, a more percussive part mm-hmm. um, because they can listen to what's happening in the headphones and, right. and know the tunes. But most likely in a live tracking setting, it's mainly going to be the principals looking at one another so that. They're all queuing. And it also mm. depends how well the arrangements are dialed in. Are they finished and everyone knows that right. it's always going to end here? Right. Or is there room for growth and right. interpretation? And we're going to spread out a little bit. Uh, and in those, and I have to say, most of those sessions uh, up there, there was, we weren't up there to get in, to get in and out in like two weeks to turn out a record and get out of there. Yeah. There was a lot of writing going on. And that's okay. why a lot of those records took as long as they did. There would be a, a, a group or a batch of songs, whatever number they'd be, that may be. And they would, we would work on them, but we also had other, or they also had ideas and we would right. stretch them out. Right. And then writing sort of happened. And then we would mm-hmm. take those to the level to, to record them. So then when you're producing or, you know, working with a band, what are some of the things you do in regards to pre-production and writing and that kind of things? Yeah. Writing, I I love. Uh, I love doing that because you never really know how things are going to turn out, right? You mm-hmm. experiment and throw things on the wall to see what sticks. Mm-hmm. And you can see and feel the artist getting, getting excited mm-hmm. and getting into it. And that, in turn, brings excitement and more ideas. I love those. Of course. Um, and then when you have songs that are pretty structured, pretty well structured, you examine them, you know, mm-hmm. and get in you know, for pre-production. I don't know anyone that's ever failed from doing pre-production. Right. Everyone always wins, right? right? It's And it's sometimes tricky to get somebody to do pre-production if they haven't done it before, or they yeah. don't like doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're burnt or they're tired of the music, but it, it, it helps to bring in. Um, a fresh idea of doing it and examining what's going on in the rhythm section, melodically Mm -hmm. tightening things up. Uh, Is it the right tempo? Could it be faster, slower? You know, you examine those things. I love doing pre-production, but also, you know, if it's, if it's just a guy, if it's a songwriter guy and you're going to bring in studio cats, right. Can't really do pre-production. You can work with the artist and do a great demo. Right. And you and the artist are, banging it out mm-hmm. making sure the transitions are tight you know that mm-hmm. it's it's that it could be done on their own as the troubadour so to speak right then you bring in right the the piecemeal and start working and on that. when you do those demos do you actually do mock-ups of the other parts the session musicians will play absolutely okay if we can do it on a drum machine to get a drum part down mm-hmm. it may be basic because right. we don't want to i think there's a large i think there's a great power in Giving direction without telling somebody what to do, yeah, right? Because you would hire a great drummer mm-hmm. to have them take um, the interpretation right. of what. Just use it as a rough guideline and then they can. This is the vibe, but yeah. we want you to do your thing, right? right. That's why you hire right. those guys. Um, but it gives a placeholder, a template, mm-hmm. you know, not to be, not to say that that template holds water it does in the demo stage right. or as a guide but it's not to like but if somebody says i want to change the the groove mm-hmm. and if that groove can change and work with everything else yeah r- great yeah fantastic so we do yeah we do try and do mock-ups right, so that we course. can give somebody something to listen to because we want to send them a rough mix and say this is what we're working on here's a real scratch bass part or a scratch drum part what can you add to it mm-hmm. what do you think You know, it's in this key, this tempo, these are the changes, Right. you know, that kind of thing. I just want to take a quick break and tell you about my free guide detailing my techniques for recording huge snare sounds. Check it out now at brandondecora.com slash huge snare. And now back to the show. So when you're working, like you've had the luxury of working with artists where they're actually writing in the studio. Yeah. 
Not everyone can do that. It's yeah. obviously it gets very expensive. It's a different day these days. Yes, but sure. at the same time, there's a lot of people with home setups that are that are pretty good, and they can do a lot with their own stuff at home and make great sounds and get inspired in that way. Very much so. How would you like? I've even been hired, you know, by you know some people that wanted me in the studio for the writing phase, strictly because of that, because I can help get you know a great sound right when they're writing and so that inspires everything else sure um how would you say it varies you know when you're at home doing something and you you have the knowledge to work it up versus in the studio with you know even better sounds and you know how would you how would you look at those differences well i think i think i also kind of have that idea that and this is a little bit of a slippery slope. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas the demo can be the finished product. Yeah. You know, and we have mm-hmm. the technology now um, to do that. And mm-hmm. there are some really fantastic, they're studios in people's homes. They're yeah. legit. I mean, look at this place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're legit, right? Yeah. So the, that, the idea of the demo stage is just... Dem, you know, I mean, it could be the finished thing on the radio right. if 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 it has what it's done, if it has what it takes, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but um, I'm also of a person that I like more. I'm more of inclined. My natural instincts are go with emotion mm-hmm. over sonics. Right. Uh, I love sonics. I love great sounding records, uh, great sounding mm-hmm. performances, but, and I'm happy to go to someone's house and help them dial in something and let them work on their own at their leisure. If it's 4am right. or right. two in the afternoon, um, cause that's how great things are written. That's how, you know, great things are made with, whether it's an artist on their own or whether it's a team of people, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's it's a little tricky because um, well, I'm a, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of great performances. I'm a fan of great material, and I feel like when people are relaxed and they are um, comfortable, they re- usually kind of forget the process. Right, it just kind of comes right. out of them. That's, and, that actually ties into another thing that I've known for a long time, or that I learned a long time ago, is that you know when you're recording like a scratch vocal, for example, you know I always do everything I can to to make it possible to use that as the final. And because when people are not thinking that the red light's on, oh, it's just a throwaway, whatever, just have fun, it doesn't matter, that's when you get the best performances. And that ties into using the demo as the final as well because it's the same, same 100%. Concept. Yeah. Um, I think that happens a lot. Mm. Um more than we probably realize. Right. Um, it just so happens now that, and nothing wrong with a Tascam Porta Studio 2 mm-hmm. cassette yeah. or track. That's what I started I on. still have it. It's upstairs. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, great sounding, but um, nothing against those. It's not about the recording. It's the performance. Of course. And we have such, and, and, and also like a shout out to like the new, equipment makers today like mm-hmm. microphones preamps equalizers pedals yeah. the the technology that's available now is crazy it's yeah. really really good mm-hmm. people are paying attention they they care about sound they care about quality and for minimal expense if you really right. look at it you yeah. know um so your your demos for lack of a better term really are as quality as a finished product on any studio level if you know what to do and how to do it and not to say that there's a right way and a wrong way to record or make a record because there's not but if you know how to get good clean signal on whatever it is and just record it Mm -hmm. and not over manipulate it without it being a problem later on down the line the demo is the finished thing right absolutely absolutely so i like to Finish up each each episode with kind of the same set of questions. Sure. Um, 
The first question I have is, what has been your most influential teacher? Okay. See, what? Not who. Well, who? <laughs> I guess either one. I'm teasing. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um, that's a good one. Uh, there have been some phenomenal uh, mentors uh, in my path that I, I couldn't, I would be remiss if I didn't mention them, but I don't want to be the um, name drop guy. But I think watching and learning from a lot of these people, mm -hmm. being in the room with them, learning how to facilitate smoothly, mm -hmm. efficiently, um, aside from learning signal path and, and, and equipment, right. um, there have been some really fantastic teachers and they run the gamut, mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, I would definitely say Rick has been uh, a, a big one for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And I've been around for a minute now to see the, the different genres and processes. The process is always a little bit of the same, but um, it's always different with personalities and how right. you manage those and how you manage the material. And the team, you know, um, has been pretty amazing. Um, and... Uh, Dan, uh, for being uh, a mentor and a person I still keep up with and calls and, you know, we have long conversations about production technique and, and mm -hmm. songs and music. Greg Fiddleman, um, I've worked under him for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, uh, most of which were Rick-based projects. Andrew Sheps, right. another one. Uh, I worked at a lot of projects with him under Rick. Uh, Schiffman, Dave Schiffman, right. another one as well. Um, cool. Joe Barisi, another guy, nice. uh, uh, not part of the Rick camp, but, um, I met him at sound city and, and we have a long, uh, friendship and mm -hmm. mentorship as well. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, these are pe these are people that taught me really how to make, uh, some really incredible sounding records at a high level. And, and, nice. uh, yeah, it's been massive impact. I, cool. I wouldn't be anywhere without them. Of course. Nice. Cool. Uh, the next question I have is, what is your favorite reference track? When you're walking into a new studio, you need to learn what the room sounds like. Whatever. Oh, right. Uh, okay, let's see. I have a playlist. I don't have one. I mm -hmm. have several. Um, it also depends on um, the material, what we're going to be working on. Of course. Um, like I said, big, big rock track is not going to work for a, a big ballad vocal. Yeah. But it is helpful to hear the room and kind of hear how the frequencies are going to respond. Mm -hmm. um, but I listen to a, a slew of things. Um, I have mm -hmm. a playlist on Spotify. Let's see. Oh, yeah. So I have like Kendrick Lamar, okay. which I love. Nice. Um, Muse. Nice. Uh, Undisclosed Desires is one of my favorites. It's a spike stint. He produced right. and mixed it. Nice. I mean, it, it jumps out of the speakers. Tom Petty, a lot of it's stuff that I've worked on too. Chili okay. Peppers. Okay. Um, yeah, System of a Down. Um, and then um, what else? It also kind of, it just sort of depends if, if I'm working with an artist and we have a lot of reference tracks or they have a lot of reference tracks that they're of referring to, yeah. then I might also put one or two of those on right. as well. After I get an idea of what the room sounds like, where the best listening position, not listening position, but I'll have an idea of uh, the, how the, the scope. Are of, yeah, yeah, how yeah. they're responding. Um, cool. And then we'll start listening to kind of references, if not even, you know, maybe some of the demos in the room just to kind of right. hear how right. it's going to affect, you know, come out. Nice. So. Uh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, last question. What do you, what do you, what do you have a reference track? I do. Or several? Well, Maybe you have a playlist? Honestly, I don't have a playlist. Oh, a lot of the guys I've been talking to do have playlists. So it's making me think that I need to, oh, to start. They one. do? Okay. So I'm not alone. <laughs> You're not alone. Um, but the main thing that I listen to is an Australian band named Carnival. Oh. And they have a, a song called New Day. And it's got, it has a lot of ups and downs, like a really big, heavy chorus and like really mellow verses and stuff like that so. carnival with a c or with a k with a k oh it's almost like really emerson funny. lake and palmer yeah it's oh. k-a-r-n-i-v-o-o-l oh wow yeah okay but they're they're like a kind of a prog rock band and they've, oh. they've been around for 
a while and it's just i'm super familiar with it so so carnival um, wh what else do you have um that's the main thing honestly i have um if i need to check out the low end of the room i'll put on a group called fat freddy's drop oh. and it's just like kind of like r&b like sort of reggae-esque okay just a lot of lot of low end on the subs and everything so i don't know either of those yeah. two artists are they american <laughs> or australian as well i honestly don't know where they're from i think they're american okay they're american yeah. fat freddy's drop yeah <laughs> nice sounds like a big cool. massive it's, drop it's yeah. cool yeah it's cool um but yeah that's kind of the main thing you know there's a few others and obviously the same thing if it's working on a project where there's references for the track or anything sure mixing i'm always listening to what the client's references are and you know that kind of thing so yeah yeah what yeah so do you do pre-production i mostly do mixing at this point okay um i'm i've done a handful of projects that i produced but i i don't really consider myself a producer mm. just because i've worked with enough amazing producers sure that I leave that to them, basically. Oh. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, like, obviously, I'll, you know, suggest, like, hey, we should try and double this guitar or whatever, you know, little things like that. But yeah. the broader, you know, aspect of producing is I leave to people that are better than me. <laughs> I see, I see, so I see. I would rather engineer and mix, and I'm doing mostly mixing now. Is that right? So, Yeah. Are you yeah. working in the box? Are you have you have outboard gear and, and I have chains? A bit of both. It's mostly in the box, but I have a, a summing uh summing bus that I use cool. for extra saturation and everything. So Oh, nice. Yeah. Very cool. That's cool. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> you have something you can uh what are you can you talk about what you're working on or what you have coming um, up? I've been working on a lot of smaller projects. Um there's a couple um films that I've done recently that are in the works i actually did a couple days working on the new uh willy wonka movie really of all things how cool um kind of random uh but i've been you know i'm i mix mostly rock tracks and it's a lot of a lot of indie projects and a lot of smaller bands but yeah you know i've been really busy doing that so. cool yeah last last question uh what is one tidbit for an upcoming engineer one tidbit for an upcoming engineer there's a lot of them because the, you know, it's changed. The business has changed, I think, so much. But I think for the longest time, I think we can teach anyone signal flow and equipment and how to compress and delay times and all of that. But mm -hmm. I think, I think if you're going to go down the route of like going into the big studio route of working right. in a big studio to, work on records it doesn't even, that doesn't even mean major label anymore mm -hmm. um but to work on records at a studio as opposed to a, a, a private studio i but also it can um cross over into the private studio i think i think it's about personality yeah. i think it's about um knowing when to speak and knowing when not to speak right and kind of, I don't want to say invisible, because that was what was kind of stressed to me coming up, but you, your presence kind of needs to be felt right. and not seen or heard. Right. Because you're there to sort of, you're there to do a job and there's a creative team that are there to help. But um, it's learning how to read a room. Right. And learning how to f look busy and stay busy mm -hmm. and be a part of the team without you know telling everybody that you're a part of the team without right. being obvious being part of the team you, it's about it's a uh it's a slippery slope on drawing attention to yourself or not and at the right time and i don't even want to say but like being cool right. but how to be cool you <laughs> right. got to have a personality for yeah. it because it's it's long hours. You're working with the same people mm -hmm. in a small room, usually yeah. uh, for at least 12 hours a day, sometimes more if you're there early and late mm -hmm. because you're backing up or syncing up drives or something. Um, but it's about um, longevity and having a cool personality that is easygoing, mild-mannered, and uh, 
willingness to learn too. Right. Um, if you don't have that hunger and you don't have the proper personality, um, it's going to be a difficult road. Yeah. And okay. I've seen a lot of people not make it, mm-hmm. not, um, not even say not make it. They've changed their minds because yes. things were becoming more difficult for yes. them. And they had decided, I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And I'm going to go and do right. something else, right. which is all fine and good. But, um, I think it's about personality and learning how to read a room. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Man. At least it was for me. Anyhow. Yeah, yeah for sure. And I, I want to, you know, stress also the eagerness to learn too. I've been, you know, engineering on, in plenty of studios where the assistant is, you know, on the phone in their corner and not even caring about what's going on in the room. It's like, I've, you know, it makes me not even want to help the guy. It's like, right. If you don't want to be here, then why do I care to help you out? You know? So yeah, that's a big part of it. Very much so, man. (laughs) Um, yeah, you can't, you can't teach, you can't teach that. Mm-hmm. People, people are really intelligent. We're intelligent beings. We pick up on one another. We read each other's cues visually mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. But if someone is, someone doesn't want to learn with the people in the room that they're working on. And obviously I'm talking about a, a major studio situation. Yeah. yeah. But if you have a person that's working there that wants to be a part of it, but is not picking up on the cues, mm-hmm. you can maybe pull that person aside and say, right. okay, look, let's maybe readdress our approach on how yeah. this is going to go down. And some people can take to that. They mm-hmm. can take direction well or right. criticism yeah. uh, in that regard, or they don't. Mm-hmm. And the it's going to show its face. Right. Whether it works or not later right. on, you right. know, like you can lead the camel to water. You just can't make them drink. <laughs> of course. Of course. How cliche. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's my, that's my awesome. philosophy on, awesome. on newcomers. Awesome. I hope and I hope it helps. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, man. Thank you awesome. very much. Appreciate, really appreciate it. it. Cool. Cool. Thanks so much for listening to the show. As you know, I'm just getting this started, and I'd love your feedback on how I'm doing, if I should keep this going, what your thoughts are. Feel free to visit ProAudioProfiles.com and send me a message. Until next time.